and um, it's interesting because I was thinking of playing a recording of Maya Angelou uh, reading that poem, which is lovely, and then thought, Avis? <laughs> Brenda, Brenda, Brenda was 17, maybe 18, when she became pregnant. I don't know how old the father of the child was, similar age, I imagine, just kids. The young man disappeared from the scene. I know nothing about him. But I do know the shame that Brenda experienced in an age greatly less enlightened. <clears throat> when Brenda gave birth to a daughter, her mother visited the hospital with a message from Brenda's dad to the effect that she could return home, but the child wasn't welcome. The 18-year-old asked her mum to pack her case and have it ready for her when she left hospital. She had no intention of giving up that daughter. I wish I'd met Brenda. I really do. But I was blessed to take her funeral this week, which I arranged with her daughter, the very daughter she decided would be part of her life forever, regardless of the cost. Maintaining professional restraint, I wept on the inside when I heard Brenda's story, not out of pity, but with sheer and utter respect for a young woman's courage. And I rejoiced to hear that mother and daughter turned out to be very, very proud of each other and who they became. I also smiled with delight to learn that Brenda eventually found love and lived uh, with her beloved for 40 years. A very lucky man, if you ask me, who also acquired an incredible daughter into the bargain. <clears throat> our situation was more straightforward, but it was a big deal in our church community in the 1960s that we were seven months pregnant on our wedding day. Talk by me of a virgin birth wouldn't ever really quite work. <laughs> it's different nowadays, you know, but at 19, at 19, I was required to stand in front of the church and make a public confession, which was one of the most painful moments of my life. But hey, we got a Jenny in our life, and yeah, we wouldn't change a thing. Nonetheless, there was shame, which is a horrible, horrible thing if you've experienced it. Guilt is when you feel you've done something wrong. Shame is when you feel that you are unacceptable. That's what the woman felt in the gospel story Juliet brought to us. We thought about her briefly last week, if you remember. <laughs> But that was from a different gospel and that was really part of a reading that I did especially for Learning Disability Week. But this is actually the story in the lectionary for today. And so we focus on her more directly. The passage from Mark is technically called an intercalation. You all know what that is, don't you? <laughs> an intercalation. That is where a narrative is split in two and another story is inserted in the middle. It's like a literary sandwich, really. And the common theme that binds these narratives together 
is that of honour and shame. Honour was a central plank of ancient society, maintained by strict codes of behaviour and expectation. To a large extent, these were uh, directed at upholding the norms and structures of patriarchy. A male-dominated culture where women are systematically disadvantaged. In ancient Israel, patriarchy was presided over by a masculine monarchical God figure. To misbehave by breaking with the taboos and ethical expectations of society was a cause of great shame and was ultimately an offence against God <clears throat> and rendered the offender unacceptable to God as well as in the community. Needless to say, this patriarchal system precluded women from any form of assertiveness. So, God help you lot. I hope. It precluded any form of female assertiveness, whether in public or private life, which reflected women's general lack of what we now call rights. Their place was one of modesty and submission, aimed at preserving the honour of their menfolk. In the passage before us, we find Jesus in social interactions that break the rules and the mores of conventional conduct within Palestinian honour culture. This would shock those who witnessed it. Uh, but by sabotaging the status quo, Jesus made room for new possibilities to emerge for human community. He called this the kingdom of God, which is a vision of what the world can become where love and justice prevail. It would be anachronistic to call Jesus a feminist, which is a very modern term and idea, and yet he certainly laid the ground for a completely different identity for women in his society. And the guardians of religious and social patriarch patriarchy hated it. They despised him for it. However, his purpose extended further actually to subvert the entire class structure of ancient Palestine. The story in Mark presents a member of the Jewish ruling class who begs Jesus to heal his daughter. Jesus agrees and heads off with the man, but is interrupted en route by the covert advance of a woman at the bottom end of society, at the lower tier, a reject considered unclean by the community. <clears throat> Against the instincts of his disciples, Jesus attended to the poverty-stricken woman who also jeopardized his honor and ritual purity by touching and contaminating him, his garment, in public. And as a result of paying the woman attention, the synagogue ruler's daughter died, we find, before he could get there. Beneath all of this is the issue of status. Jesus interacts with two people from opposite ends of the social scale. Jairus, he's named by the way. Jairus, a synagogue ruler who upholds the honor system by falling at Jesus' feet to beg a favor. And then a nameless poor woman who surreptitiously sneaks into the crowd, courageously seeking healing, even if it means being caught out, which she could have been and castigated for polluting her neighbours and the visiting rabbi. 
This woman moves me to tears, honestly, the way that Brenda does. She suffered a 12-year-long hemorrhage, which meant she could not be touched without making the other person impure, according to the law. Living in constant misery, her bloody period, and I mean her bloody period, was endless. Her life literally ran from her every single day for 12 years. And yet worse still, she suffered under the religious taboo of being considered an outcast, unclean. Even normally menstruating women, I mentioned this last week, even normally menstruating women were treated as infectiously impure. Leviticus, listen, deplorably states this. <clears throat> whoever touches her, this is a woman having a period, whoever touches her shall be unclean. Everything upon which she lies during her impurity shall be unclean. Everything also upon which she sits shall be unclean. Whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes, his clothes, and bathe in water. Whoever touches anything upon which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe in water. Whether it's a bed or anything upon which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean. If any man lies with her and her impurity falls on him, he shall be unclean for seven days. And every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. Wow! That's in the Bible. Imagine this woman's life. Just imagine it. Untouched for 12 years. Touch is so vital. I read a piece by a 93-year-old woman who said the touch is the sense that diminishes least but becomes hardest to satisfy in old age. We all need to touch and be touched. It's our first language, our mother tongue, which we mostly learn first from our mother. Touch is utterly primal. When I visited Violet three years after taking her husband's funeral, it was like it happened yesterday. She still felt the pain of her loss intensely. I took her hand to say a prayer, and then I leaned across and gave her a hug. She held me tightly, so much that I wondered if I would ever be let go. And when she did, she said, thank you. Do you know, the only people who touch me nowadays are the doctor and the chiropodist. Actually, I go to have my feet done even when I don't need it just to feel someone's touch. We never had children. Sometimes I think that now with the old man gone, my hugging days are gone. Who wants to cuddle an old woman? The woman in the gospel had suffered, it says, under many physicians. Suffered under many physicians. She had spent everything on it, but only grew worse as a result. She was unwell, ostracized, exploited and perpetually segregated. Jesus felt her touch, which amazed the disciples. Jesus felt, who touched my garment? A miracle in a swarm of people. He saw her. I see you. He really saw her. Even publicly praised her faith and audacity, sweeping aside any notion that she had contaminated him. Right there, 
Blasting through her wretched isolation and exploding social taboo, Jesus pointed toward and instigated a new social order of compassion, justice, and equality. This woman was a daughter too. Not just a rich man's daughter, she was my daughter, he announced. And it's interesting too, I only noticed this listening to the reading as Juliet read it, that it says that when he called her out, she told him the whole truth. I think, oh my God, what lies in that little phrase, the whole truth. And, you know, to find someone like him who would listen in front of all of these people. It's the only miracle story, you know, in the Gospels that happened without Jesus doing anything. He didn't will it even in his mind. He was a passive player in her story, in a story of desperate heroism. Your faith has saved you, he says. I didn't do it. You brought about your own healing. What an empowering thing that was. You did it. Go in peace, enjoy full health. Meanwhile, Jairus is informed that it's too late. His daughter's now dead. Disregarding the news, often a good idea, I'd say, <clears throat> Jesus exhorts the synagogue leader to follow the woman's example. Don't be afraid, have faith. And then proceeds to the house. Throwing out everyone except the girl's parents and his disciples, Jesus announces that the girl only sleeps and declares, Talitha come, which means little girl, get up and she's restored to life. Consider the difference between these two women. A young girl who had enjoyed 12 years, did you notice the 12? She had enjoyed 12 years of privilege as the daughter of the synagogue ruler, and a statusless woman who had suffered those very same 12 years of destitution at the hands of synagogue purity systems and its doctors. The story is laced with symbolism. You know, it's all over the place. There were, there were 12 tribes of Israel. You know that, don't you? There were 12 tribes of Israel. It's a significant number. Mark, the writer of the gospel, clearly considers the synagogue ruler's Judaism to be on the verge of collapse. A new order was needed, symbolically pictured in Jesus raising the 12-year-old up. Whenever church or religion ceases to be a source of human liberation and flourishing, well, it deserves to die and make way for a new order. If religion, if society in general, is not deeply humanistic in the true sense of that term, a source of human flourishing, a source of flourishing for our planet, then it needs to die and allow something new to appear. Still I rise, still I rise, Maya Angelou delightfully proclaims. Every time a person courageously announces, I rise, I refuse to be reduced or diminished by society or by oppressive political policies and regimes or by fundamentalist religion or by sheer greed and prejudice. Every time a soul declares, still I rise, the kingdom of God becomes a living flesh and blood reality right there. That's the kingdom of God right there. Doesn't matter about the window dressing. We need to ask constantly, who are the marginalized and the excluded in our world? Who are the untouchables? I despise the global trend toward tribalism, 
and sectarian interests, which I fear you know, is all around us at the moment. Me and my small corner against the rest. Friends, we are earthlings. Before we're English, Scottish, Welsh, British or whatever, American, we are earthlings. And we're partners in a global community. We are sisters and brothers. We are our sisters and brothers keepers. I know the global refugee crisis is ginormous, a ginormous social and political problem, but the answer isn't to build walls, much less to tear apart families. God help us. The answer cannot lie in closing our hearts to people in need. I'm a Christian humanist. I say Christian humanist because my vision of a kinder, liberating, more democratic, socially just and inclusive world is rooted in the figure of Jesus, who constantly affirmed the dignity and value of people who were marginalised and stigmatised, who boiled the 613 laws from the Hebrew Bible down to just two basic essentials, love God with all your heart and love your neighbour as yourself who taught people to critically evaluate the religious dogmas of the day and to look at the heart of their religion instead of worrying about rules and conventions, who at the same time as being kind and generous toward the poor and the excluded and the defamed, uh, he relentlessly criticised the wealthy and the powerful and especially the self-serving religious establishment, who denounced nationalism and tribalism, often making foreigners and social misfits the heroes of his stories, who condemned social injustice and greed and called on the wealthy and the influential to use their privilege to benefit others, who gave a voice to the voiceless and stood up for the rights of those who had none. The kingdom of God is not a theological theory or construct. It's not a code of ethics nor a political program, but the promise of a humane world when we discover the heart of God in the depths of humanity and set about building our lives and communities around that to which I hope we all say, 